You're listening to another Comics Pals Book Club. The Book Club is a monthly edition, a special edition of the Comics Pals, where we get together to talk about a book that we like or a book that you guys have recommended, something like that. And uh, this time, we're actually sitting down for what I believe is our third X-Men book in a row. Is that correct? Oh, geez, yeah. In a row? In a row. Yeah, de- Demon Bear. Wow. Was the was the one the last one? Mm-hmm. And then uh, yep. before that was another X Men book that I can't recall at the moment. Oh, uh, Magneto Testament. And there you go. Well, and it's now you, you X forced oh, yeah. us to read Jeez. it, Sean. <laughs> what? Uh, you X forced us to read this one. <laughs> oh God, that's awful. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did because I think that. Uh, Uncanny X-Force by Rick Remender, which is what we're sitting down to read, is one of the very best series out of Marvel for its era. Definitely one of the best out of the big two, and I think one of Remender's standout work. He's joined on this by a whole host of artists over the course of 35 issues, and it's just really a who's who. Jerome Pena, uh, Greg Tatini, Phil Noto. It's just, it's just incredible what these creators were able to accomplish here. Um, I'm very excited to get into this. I've never actually had the opportunity to talk about this run with other people before, so um, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts about it. Before we dive in, I do want to let you guys at home know. Go ahead, Kale. Sorry, before... <laughs> never never, before we... never will there be a non-interruption on the Comics Pals. Go ahead. Uh, to to be fair, I raised my hand. I didn't just blatantly. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at the credits. <laughs> um, so, what do you think? The before we get too into this uh, 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 discussion, what do you think? Yeah, I was trying the, to plug. Kale. I know. What's happening? Just slow down. Slow down. What do you think? The uncanny. Wh- what is the rubric that they put the uncanny on the X Force? I don't know what the hell that question means, bro. <laughs> let me re- let me see if I can rephrase. It's one in the morning. What? If, no, we'll cut it out and fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. I don't have the energy okay, for it. Okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> We're not cutting that out. All right. I okay. Don't care. So, uh, as I was going to say. I want you guys at home, if you have the opportunity to read this or if you have read it, to join along with us or otherwise, definitely do write in to us at thecomicspals.gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts about this book. Um, Or if there's a book you would like us to read that we haven't yet read, let us know. We have plenty of backlog you guys can go check out as well. So get us on uh, social media at The Comics Pals. Join our Discord. Uh, The link will be in the description. So plenty of ways to get at us. Now, Kale... If you want to try to rephrase your question, I'm happy to answer. (laughs) (laughs) We're listening. (laughs) So, you know how there's been X-Force? Yeah. And this is uncanny X-Force. Right. What makes this uncanny and not just another X-Force? Oh. What, What is the... What is the thing that makes it uncanny and how do they, you know, how do they do that with the various titles, especially on something like X-Men where there are 15 different. What, what, what makes a Spider-Man spectacular? What makes one amazing? <laughs> well, no, there is actually an answer for this. Uh, I'm, I, I'm genuinely surprised you guys don't know this already. So what? Well, and I, I wondered if you would, because you guys do a lot more panels and stuff than, than I ever have. So right. I figured that's the, that's the kind of thing you would know. So Marvel has a board, right? And it's got all those pronoun type names, right? Like Uncanny, mm. Amazing, Spectacular. And what they actually do is they roll a D20. And whatever number it lands on, 
is actually the title that gets applied. So in this case, they rolled a one. What can I tell you? Ha! <laughs> critical failure. That's Shit. Awesome. <laughs> is that is that real? Fuck no. <laughs> 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 I answered your you silly had, question you, with a silly answer. What do you want me to do? You had me with the board, and then you lost me with the D20. I, I, I was so like, I was like, yeah, there's a, he's building a lot of mythology. Oh my <laughs> god, you fucking chumps. Uh, no, I knew he was kidding. If you'd said they throw a dart at the board every time, that, that I would have believed. Oh, you would have believed that? Yeah, I'm very dumb. <laughs> so, um, there's a lot to get into. This book is 35 issues, volume one, and I'm dying to talk to you guys about it. I guess the way I would start is what did you guys make of the cast? Because I actually, when this book was first announced, I remember um, I was at a panel. I was at the New York Comic Con panel that they had for uh, X-Men. They talked about this book. And I wasn't in love. I was there too, man. Cool. I, I wasn't in love <laughs> with the cast. So <clears throat> the initial cast, of course, consists of uh, Psylocke, Wolverine, Phantom X, Archangel, and Dead. Very eclectic. And at the time, I really wasn't a fan of Wolverine, Deadpool, or Phantom X. Uh, well, Phantom X was all right. I liked him from, um, from uh, oh my God. Uh, Didn't like him that much. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> I, I, I was familiar enough to like him. Uh-huh. Um, and Psylocke, of course, I like. But yeah, so what did you? What, where did you guys come into this cast from? Where did you come from with this? So I actually read this arc, uh, for, or this run, I guess, for a while when it was contemporary. Um, I dropped off. I'll have to see it. It was the second time, or the third time they switched artists, I think, was when I fell off. So it's like somewhere around... 10 issues maybe or something like that um and one of the reasons i was drawn to it was because of the cast initially um because i i do like wolverine and at that time um i was a fan of of deadpool's um not like a huge fan but i like him in in specifically this kind of setting um and i've said that before uh i like it when he has other more kind of serious characters to bounce off of and i've always been uh, a fan of of psylocke at least like visually because she was in marvel vs. capcom 2 so since i was a kid i was like psylocke's awesome so like that was kind of my my entry point i wasn't um i didn't really care about archangel and wasn't familiar with uh phantom x until this run um but those three characters definitely were ones that resonated with me then and going into the book now i still think it's a solid team that has like a pretty good chemistry i think the only thing that really it's like phantom x and deadpool have similar ish kind of energy um but you know i hmm. overall i think it's uh it's a pretty solid lineup even though it's a weird one okay and by the way uh i don't know how i was able to forget this but of course my love for phantom x comes from new x-men by grant morrison anyone else with their initial impressions of the team um with wolverine it's tough because this is a few years after the fact but around that time he was truly on every goddamn book in fact Mm. without getting too into the weeds he makes, there's like a pretty good Rick Remender joke in like the fifth or sixth issue yeah. where he's like, ah, you pulled me away from my Avenger shit. What the fuck? He makes a joke about it later too, where he's like, I'm on so many goddamn teams. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like with Wolverine, it's, it's tough because he's, uh, he was so o- oversaturated at the time that like really could be a mixed bag. Phantom X is a uh, bomb ass. So that was cool. Psylocke's good. I hate Deadpool. I truly hate Deadpool, and we'll get into <laughs> the things that he made me feel in this book. 
later. <laughs> huh, interesting. Uh, which was frustrating. Who am I missing? Oh, Archangel. I've, I've low-key always liked Archangel as a kid. He was, uh, mm. back when I would rank everything as like a kid, he was just my, he was my third favorite X-Men when I was like seven years old. Really? Yeah. He was awesome that's on cool. the show, the, uh, yeah. series. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I never had a, there's not too many great, like, Warren Worthington books out there. So this was satisfying to my seven year old brain, uh, to have a book that heavily featured him. But cast wise, yeah, I wasn't. I I, re- I actually wasn't really reading X Men in 2010. I was reading Marvel in 2010. Uh, I had really taken a long break from Marvel. I think in 2007. So this was in that gap, the gap period where I wasn't reading. So this was kind of like in that th- those lost years. Okay. How about you, Kale? Actually, I think I might have been in the same place as Phil. Uh, sort of uh, lost years because I remember when I got to a point where I was at comic book shops. Uh, well, I think Wolverine and the X-Men was just coming out in trade. Okay. Anyway, uh, yeah, I like the cast well enough. Um, especially, especially in the beginning, I, I thought the, I thought the, the casts in the beginning had a lot more chemistry than they sort of end up with in the end. But I, I, I'm a fan of a good oddball cast, you know, with, uh, someone, someone like Angel, for me, coming out of uh, left field for for uh, for for this sort of uh, uh, team, yeah, totally. And I think that oddball nature is one of the things that attracted me to this book. I normally don't like stabby groups, and this is very much a stabby yeah. shooty group, uh, mm-hmm. which is why traditionally I didn't care about X Force whenever they would you know have that be relaunched or an ongoing or whatever. It's kind of ignored it. <clears throat> what drew me to this more than anything was the promise of Rick Remender writing it. Rick Remender, as I make no bones about on the primary show, is one of my favorite writers of all time. In fact, I gave him writer of the decade for the 2010s. And this is a major reason why. Uh, And that's a big reason why I picked this book. This book has themes that run within a lot of the books that I tend to enjoy. I'm excited to talk about them. Uh, One of the major ones... And it's something we talked about a lot in our Secret Wars book club, where we talked about the Illuminati and how they were responsible for making terrible choices. The Illuminati had to destroy worlds to protect their own. We discussed the morality of that. Well, this book is certainly all about the morality of murder and whether or not there can be righteous killing. And how does the soul of a human being whether you're mutant or not, uh, come out on the other side of that kind of action. It's a very focused book that Mm. really is only telling one story throughout the entire run. And that gives it a precision that allows you to feel a consistency from start to finish. And the characters change throughout. So it really feels like you're on a journey with them, which is what I appreciate most about it. So I want to start off with the very first arc, which is the Apocalypse Solution. Here, we're introduced to the team. Uh, there is actually a backup story that you get, uh, which kind of just introduces the concept through Deadpool's eyes. Uh, but once we get into the thick of things, we're introduced to the final horsemen who are coming into play now that Apocalypse is dead and they're trying to bring him back. And X-Force has assembled for this horrific mission. Whenever Apocalypse is involved, I think the weight of things, the gravity of the of the mission is raised. How did you guys feel about the way that those first four issues were constructed? So much happens, but it feels tight at the same time. We get the final horsemen. We get 
get the introduction to the chemistry of the team and a major reveal at the end that puts these characters in the position to have to make a, a horrific decision, which of course is the idea that Apocalypse is now resurrected as a child and they have to decide whether to kill him or not. How did you guys feel about that sort of four-issue hook? It was really interesting. I really, I was, I, I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's challenging sometimes in comics to hit the ground running in the first issue. I mean, we talk about that constantly on the main show, but from issue one, it's, it's go and it's it's captivating all the way through and the way rick remender is able to kind of introduce the final horseman as he calls him that that's like a i think that's tricky on concept because this is a concept that's been kind of done to death uh pun intended <laughs> and i think i think the final four horsemen he creates here are really in like they're interesting looking. Their the way he kind of crafts a brief backstory for each of them is also interesting. And like the way he kind of plays off them is really interesting. Like the way uh, Phantom X tricks uh, the 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 Minotaur horseman into thinking he's in love with Psylocke is crazy. Like that was great. And so the way it, it, it's it's interesting because the 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 climax of it, you know, full spoilers at this point is. Uh, Phantom X shooting the 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 uh, rebirth apocalypse in in the in the in the temple or in the forehead, uh, killing him. And at the time, you think I, I don't know where it's going from here. I don't know if this is just the beginning and we're gonna move on to different like a different story arc altogether. Like I didn't know if this was setting the right. tone of like okay these these are the, this is the type of thing that they're willing to do or. Mm-hmm. Or what? But what it ended up being is really an inciting incident for everything that drives this book moving forward. And that was really, really brilliant because I didn't realize that what this story was going to be about, which is what you alluded to, Sean, is nature versus nurture. Can you stave off Apocalypse? Can you save off a serial killer? Can you save off the worst of us with a better upbringing? And... This being the inciting incident to start threads of that story, I thought was brilliant. Beautifully said, and I'm so glad you got that out of this. Yeah, so I um I echo a lot of what Phil said there, and it's funny because I <clears throat> I think uh the hitting the ground running of it all that makes that first issue feel like a kind of a rocky landing, I think, because um, it, it is like very, very fast paced. But I think as soon as you get to that reveal at the end of the first issue, it really like it really starts to click um, and you get kind of exactly what this book is a, like about about. And then I think to Phil's point, the fact that that the, the actions of this arc echo throughout the the book again and again and again i think um makes the sum of or i guess the whole of the issue the this these four issues better than their individual parts even though they're good issues because i think that there are other arcs of this run that are more engaging than the first one but they're all more engaging because of the first one I, I can't stress this enough, and you talk about a, a shooty, stabby book, a lesser author and a lesser creative team would have had, you know, a badass character, you know, kill a child and move on, and it would have been an edgy tone to set in the sense of, like, yeah, we're, we're willing to go anywhere. Right. But remember, he doesn't let it pass. Yeah. It defines everyone these characters are never allowed to escape their actions 
And that's so important to the quality of why this is excellent. And I, I think it's, I think it's even better because there's kind of an added layer where I also don't think that uh, Remender he also doesn't undermine the fact that there is um, a reason why that choice would be made, right? Like I don't think that um, that it's as simple as having the characters do things that are unsavory and then make them pay for it. It's also like them grappling with was this the right call, right? Like, and the fact that there is a justifiable argument um, to the the their very existence yeah. is is what makes it dynamic, right? Because it's not just watching these you know characters who are supposed to be heroes getting their hands dirty. It's asking yourself and grappling with the the tough question of like you said, Sean. Like, is there a time where where murder is the right thing? And I, I don't think that the book really tells you how to feel about that. It asks you how you feel about that. Yeah, and you get to watch these characters grapple with that question in every arc in some form or fashion. How about you, Kale? Yeah, I definitely – I wasn't super into it until until the child killing. <laughs> oh, <Okay. Kale. laughs> I see what's happening. That's uncanny. <laughs> um, but <laughs> – uh, but what what really really hooked me was the the res- like the immediate result of that. Um, I was just going over over the end of that issue when when that happens, uh, issue four, and you know it isn't just that Phantom X makes that decision. He he also closes you know Kid Apocalypse's eyes, and and then the next page is silence as they they go on. Um, and then you know the 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 next big reveal, uh, the next big reveal. I, I don't remember if it's the the next issue or, uh, but when he's growing another one, yep. mm-hmm. uh, that that for me was like, okay, now we are going somewhere. All right, yeah, absolutely. And something that Remender does that you don't realize unless you are really good at reflecting in the moment or you read it again, is that every character is essentially establishing themselves and setting seeds for the future within these first four issues. Phantom X is supposed to be, or he presents himself as, this uncaring, roguish, devil-may-care guy who will do whatever it takes, right? And that's the impression you get. He He's the one that kills this kid. So he's just this badass guy. Like, And then... If things went the way that Phil suggested they could have, whereby the team just moves on after that, well, that's who Phantom X is. But it's a lie, right? It's a misdirection. He actually has a clone that he's saving to try to right this wrong, right? Uh, Deadpool presents himself as someone who's just nuts, doesn't care about anybody or anything, but he saves Archangel, and he has a big, big problem with the fact that they killed his kid, right? Uh, Psylocke and Archangel are very strong. They present themselves that way. They're a rock-solid couple. But Archangel's got some problems, and Psylocke's sure going to try to save him. Um, and we see how all of those threads kind of carry forward. Wolverine is this steadfast leader who recognizes what the job is, and he's done so many bad things for good causes that he feels like the ends justify the means, and his soul isn't that black. But we see that it is as we go down the road. And he gets a chance to redeem himself later as well, which I really appreciated. But so much was set up in these first four issues, and I really appreciated what Remender was doing. Now, before we move forward, I have to ask you guys 
the same question that these characters were forced to answer within the fourth issue of this book. Would you have killed Kid Apocalypse knowing what he was being groomed for and what he would likely become? Would I have? No. Yeah, I couldn't have pulled the trigger for sure. I don't think so. I, um... I, I've never really believed in preemptive strikes, you know? Uh, but in this situation, I don't know. I've never been in a situation like that. So my brain and heart tell me I wouldn't. But, you know, I don't know what would happen in the actual situation. I don't think I would. I've struggled with that since I read this book off and on whenever I've thought about it or during a reread. And I think... I'm inclined to say, yeah, that I would. Uh, As awful as a choice, as awful a choice as it is, I think that there's almost no way that this doesn't result in them dying down the road. Mm. And I think I think I agree with that too, though. Yeah, like I don't think I could pull the trigger, but I think you. I don't. I don't know that it's the wrong thing to do. Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the thing. I think it's just I don't have the stomach for it. it it's, a, it's that same argument of, you know, if you had a time machine, would you go back and kill baby Hitler? Right. Like It's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do when it's a kid looking you in the eyes. The one, you know? the one kind of caveat to that point you bring up there, Kale, is that what we know about Hitler's character as a, as a younger person, he wasn't groomed to become the mass murderer that he that's would true. be. <laughs> he wasn't indoctrinated. Whereas this kid apocalypse is very much that. So, yeah, that's true. Um, I would have to make that choice. I really also liked the final horseman. I thought that it was pretty cool that they weren't just characters that were being repurposed for this. In interviews, uh, Remender has said that he was actually not allowed to use he had characters selected to become these final horsemen who were characters that you know apocalypse had interacted with before um and who had been horsemen in the past and uh it was actually his editor axel alonzo who said nah make them new characters you don't want to get bogged down and having to deal with the history and interrelating of all these people you won't have the time so thankfully he was able to come up with new characters for this and i think that they were really cool um I, I really I really like um pestilence just because of how disgusting she is. Oh god, mm. dude, her power that is one of the gnarliest superpowers I've ever seen. That is it was so like body horror gross. Yeah. <laughs> dude, you know if Marco was here, he'd be like, That's my waifu. <laughs> yeah. I like the drummer too. Yeah. He I, oh, he dude. was my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> he was the best. Well, that like, was- I, Dude, I just thought it was so funny because he said he has like two lines in the whole book. Like every other time, he just shows up and, he's, and it's just yeah. everybody just collapses. <laughs> well, and it's like almost always Deadpool. Kel, yeah. The only reason you like him so much is because uh, he's the closest to your generation. Oh boy, I thought that joke was going to go somewhere wildly different. <laughs> um, That's good. And uh, the book also, or the first four issues also have some pretty cool moments. Specifically, uh, one that I'll never forget for the rest of my life is when Deadpool is feeding Archangel his own skin. Oh god, yep. yeah, that was so yep. gross. <laughs> and it's, it's wild that stuff like that just never comes up again. It's just like, it's, you know what? It's fine. I I love. I did really like the line where he's just like, prom- like if I tell you, promise you'll keep eating it. <laughs> like, it's just like that got me. <laughs> so gross. Yeah, yeah, really uh, awful stuff. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this first arc is really unforgettable, and uh, it definitely sets the stage for what we get going forward. Um, so we, we move on, and we get the um, the uh, the sort of interim issues. There's like I, I believe this is the order. There's like a couple of issues that kind of set set the stage with Archangel. Um, show us more about what's going on between him and him and uh, Psylocke, and how she's having a harder time keeping the Archangel portion of Warren's mind restrained, and uh, how you know hard that is. Um, what did you guys think about that as kind of like the next threat? I wasn't really that intrigued by it at first because I understand what Archangel's powers are and I was like, oh, I don't really get it. I don't see it. why he, that would be a big deal. I didn't know what was to come, but mm. yeah, what would you guys, you know, did you, did you care about him as, as a major deal? I think like there's the inherent drama of like having a character who your heroes empathize with. Right. Like having the turn, you know? So like I... I I definitely get what you mean in terms of not necessarily like feeling like the threat matters that much, but I feel like the emotional stakes of that situation kind of carry you through or at least carried me through as a reader until I understood what the stakes really were. Right. Um, he, you know, at first it kind of felt like that Transformers thing where uh, Rodimus Prime succeeds Optimus Prime, and it's like, this is shit ain't as good. Um, <laughs> it's just a facsimile, but uh, it ended up working really well. And I think why I why it really worked for me is as soon as they started incorporating more and more of Celestial stuff, Yeah, hmm. I was like, fuck, here we go. And like creating this environment with the Seed of Life uh, where they just create their own evolutionary biome is so wild, and all the while, he, the way he characterizes Archangel specifically. Once I was a horseman, now I am Apocalypse, but I'm not Apocalypse. I am Archangel. Like mm. was excellent, and just the like. I, 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 it was it was easy to get. I think part of it is enhanced by just the quality of art in the section of this book. Like I think of I think of characters like like genocide and how they look and like how they are incorporated and like yeah. I think part of what helps is is the setting, the circumstances, and the art. Agreed. Yeah, I it's I don't love the pencils as much after the the I think the art in the first arc is is probably the strongest in my opinion, which is I think a shame. Um, but I do think that there, there are a lot of really, really strong moments in this whole, like, establishment of the Deathlock, like, thread of it all, you know? Yeah, um, speaking to the, the, well, Kale didn't get to share his piece on that. I, I, uh, I loved the Archangel stuff, but the Angel, the, the Warren Psylocke stuff, I was kind of, it, it got a bit grating to me, especially when you factored in a little bit later, uh, Phantom X. I found that kind of, uh, I don't know, sort of annoying in that, like, comic book way. Listen, it wouldn't be an X-Men book if there wasn't a love triangle, baby. Fair. That's fair. 
fan. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we do get into the, the Deathlock stuff. And I remember being so annoyed that we were pivoting from what was so incredible, uh, the first four issues, and then the uh, the tangle with Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers, which I really love as a one-off issue. Um, I don't know if that was included in what you guys read, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but then we get into the Deathlock stuff, and I was like, ah, man, I don't care about Deathlock. I don't want to read about the world. But it, but it ended up being so important. Um, mm. And, it, and it, it's funny yeah. because a lot of writers, a lot of X-Men writers always go back to those concepts of like rapid growth and weapon plus um, and all that different stuff. And it's very prevalent here. Uh, but so many characters in this book are impacted by the world in some form or fashion. Phantom X, of course, comes from there. So does Wolverine. So does Deadpool. It ended up being a lot more important than I thought it was. And it furthered the the problems that the team had with what they had just done. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I, I'm with you on on that reaction to this section because I, I fit, similarly felt kind of frustrated because I felt like the end of the first arc was when I feel like it really starts. You're like, okay, cool. Like, we're getting going, and then this feels like a total diversion. And it very much, like, um, I think, like, this is where I kind of lost interest in the book when I was reading it originally, because it was just like, okay, like, this just feels like another Monster of the Week thing, not something that, again, was going to have deeper ramifications. And I think it's, it's, it's another thing that where this arc for me feels like its contributions to the whole are a lot more satisfying than just the beats itself. Um, because I, I think like I, I was getting a little fatigued during this arc, but it's after this arc where I feel like everything is like totally, you know, um, like it, it's the, the actions are totally like, okay, this, this arc feeds into this one, feeds into this one. And you can see where it all leads back to, you know, these, these kind of earlier events that seem disconnected, but to your point are factoring into like the team's broader psyche and their like thoughts about X Force and what they're doing, and you know that is like the whole meat of all of the conflict, right? Yeah, I guess I, I guess I actually I actually enjoy this arc quite a bit. It's just that when I was first first reading it, I was just like, ah oh, man, what's this? <laughs> but I want more apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, almost instantaneously, especially the second time around, I was way into it. Go ahead, Phil. Um, since we're focusing here, and I do like Deathlock, it's this, it's this story arc that has one of my favorite single issues I've read in a long time, mm. which is when Magneto contracts Wolverine to kill the Nazi. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That was a better World War II story than Magneto Testament. <laughs> that that scene is what needed to be at the end of Magneto Testament. <laughs> that was crazy. That you, one issue, yeah. You talk about the redemption Wolverine receives later. This whole issue, I think, underlies who Wolverine is. Like, it, it was a reminder of, like, rem this was such, a, I think, an important issue because, again, we talk about Wolverine being a saturated character over the last 10 years at this point. This issue, again, reminds you that at the heart of it, Wolverine can be an absolute feral animal. And 
I think that's really important going forward. But this single issue, and like the way that Magneto is just presented without any dialogue whatsoever, just right, visceral. Oh yeah, yeah, that whole thing is that those pages are excellent. Um, and I think just on the the importance of that scene, to your point, Phil, I feel like that ends up coming home to roost later in like another one of Logan's kind of internal monologues where he's talking about how he's defined and he allows people to define him that way. And I feel like Magneto coming to him for this and his reaction to it where he's like, I, I don't want to do this. Why don't you do this yourself? But then he's just like, of course I'll go do it. Right. Like that, th- this is the scene I think about or that, that event is the scene I kept coming back to whenever they would talk about kind of the dichotomy of Wolverine as a killer. Mm. Just before that issue, <clears throat> we get the issue that it's called Unintended Consequences. Um, and it, it features sort of the, the aggressive expansion of the problem with Archangel. And it's exacerbated by the Shadow King, yes. who is one of my all-time favorite X-Men villains, which I know is yes. really random, but I loved the television series episode where he uh, chases Storm's fake son um, in Africa. <laughs> um, I just always thought he was really a creepy villain, and here he's even more monstrous. This was the first time I ever saw him in a comic book, and I was really uncomfortable with how he looked, the kinds of things he said, the actions that he took, I thought he was disgusting. But he was used so effectively to drive forward uh, the the Archangel situation. I really like that. Have uh, Have you seen Legion yet? No, the FX show. He's the he's the main antagonist. Get in out that. of here! It's very very good. <laughs> cool. Listen, I'm I'm the journalist who who's on the line here, being threatened by a billionaire. <laughs> That would be you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's 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 sad, though, because I don't know about you guys, but um, even though Angel is not one of my favorite X-Men, I have always looked at him as the best and worst of what the X-Men could be. What you mean? Uh, so, you know, he's, a, he's literally a, a, a man with angelic wings, right? And so that's like, how could you not sort of look up to that. Even in X-Men 3, the movie, The Last Stand, which everyone hates, he's in that movie, and I will never forget that scene that opens the movie where he's trying to cut his his wings out of his body. Yeah. And the movie ends with him flying and saving someone. And I've I've loved the character since then because of that kind of thing. And so to see him I think, go ahead. I think I had an angel toy. Yeah. Of yeah, course, I had I had a couple. Um, yeah. uh, the Toy Biz Marvel Legends line, good shit. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, but uh, it was that scene in the middle of the third arc. I I, I don't want to get too far ahead, but there's it's a it's a flashback scene of Xavier during the you know the original X Men era where he where uh, Angel expresses his feelings of sort of ineptitude compared to a man who could shoot lasers out of his eyes and a man who right. could control the molecules of his body and freeze them and you know uh someone who can move things with her mind we know their, we know their powers phil it's okay i'm waxing philosophically for the listener go for it peter <laughs> um and he expresses like i'm just a man with wings and xavier is like yeah but you have something that can be so much more important down the line. You have this courage and your friends are going to need you to lean on 
and and now look at him he's he's the fallen angel he's like lucifer and right just terrific juxtaposition again that's and that's a microcosm of what i was trying to refer to this is the same person who professor x posited as like the hope for the future or whatever the person who would bridge the gap they even say that about him that he's the he's the poster child for human mutant relations and this is a guy Mm -hmm. who's killing journalists who's killing um you know basically innocent um, people, the guy, the, the the soldier who was being forced to launch the nuke, he definitely didn't have to die. And what kills you is that Wolverine and the rest of the team will give him the benefit of the doubt, but he's already right. gone at that point. Um, and, but there's always that thread of Warren inside of him that even me as a reader cling to because it, it comes out in moments. And, of course, then once we get into the Dark Angel saga, by this point, it's just far too late. Yeah, you see that kind of remaining light get snuffed out little by little. Exactly. And how crazy is it that Wolverine was preparing them always to kill him through the danger room? <laughs> Yo, listen, if that was me, if, Sean, if you programmed in a, in a Comics Pals danger room, like some kind of simulator to kill Phil, I'd be low-key pretty pissed. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you had a demon inside you, like, I'd hope you would understand. Also, I wouldn't invite you on our Black Ops team, but that's just me. Pete, we're going to have to get rid of that program. (laughs) Shaquille, I swear (laughs) to God, I'm pissed now. (laughs) (laughs) So, but then we, we do get into the Dark Angel saga, which is probably what I remember most about this run. Yeah, um, I think it's it's the strongest mm-hmm. uh, yeah. part, I think. Yeah, I, I think I tend to agree with that. So many things happen in it, and it's predicated on a simple idea, which is saving Archangel. Uh, again, Archangel is not different than the child apocalypse, because inside of him, though we know that there's a killer, a potential killer there, he's still angel this innocent person who doesn't harm people who cares about people who loves people the innocence of a child and that's the same thing that would drive these characters who know and love him to try to rescue him even when they know he's on the verge of falling into a pit he can't get out of and in their desperation to save him not only do they trust dark beast but they follow him (laughs) to the age of apocalypse that was wild dude (laughs) It, it really, really was. And I can't understate, for those of you who weren't reading comics at this point, how crazy it was that they went into the Age of Apocalypse and they found a version of Nightcrawler. Dude, I was so pissed off. Okay, so like this was, this was like that era of Marvel where they were being criticized for just constantly killing people and bringing them back. And we've talked about it in the show proper where it's like the revolving door of death and the lack of impact that deaths have. Uh, and so when they killed Nightcrawler, I was so pissed off by it because he had been my favorite Marvel character since I was a baby. Um, so I was I, I read that issue. I, was, I just pissed myself off, as it were. But seeing Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler here uh, was extremely because he becomes a, a bigger player through the rest of it. it was extremely satisfying. Um, there's something really satisfying about seeing like the opposite version of a character because you know uh, uh, Kurt Darkholm is is so antithetical to Kurt Wagner. 
Um, like I would never want to see Nightcrawler do the things that Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler does, but it's fun to see that, like, oh, this guy is willing to cut off a dude's head and teleport it off his body entirely. That was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was so awesome. <laughs> I love how that was like his go-to move too. Like he's like, that's my secret move, man. <laughs> or, yeah, Eats every or, villain. <laughs> or teleport a shark into a guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's so best, hypest, hypest moment of the entire book, I swear to God. That was amazing. That was so disgusting. Holy shit. Can we take a moment, since we're on that, to talk about how gruesome and brutal this book was in general? Yeah. Especially with Blob. The dude has bad shit happened to him left and right. He was nasty. This book is hyper-violent, but it's probably one of the only books that I've ever read that is that, where I felt like it was 100% justified like i never felt like oh you you know this is just being done because just more violence sells it felt like there was a story being told through the violence yeah i i think remender did a good job of exploring like wolverine's relationships in this arc too because like yeah who who does he love more than anything it's it's gene and i just kidding you two are very similar in that regard um (laughs) (laughs) uh and i I think it's interesting to have the opportunity to be united with someone that you lost that you love so dearly but it's not them it's it's them but it isn't and the other aspect is like you know who who does whose opinion does wolverine admire the most it's kurt wagner's he's like a moral compass to him i don't know if they're best friends necessarily they might be but they're close enough to being that very they're, 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 they're Wolverine Nightcrawler is like a brother, and I mean, he's like unquestionably one of his closest relationships yeah, exactly. by like a pretty wide margin. Yeah. And so you're he's given the opportunity to interact with both of those things at once. But and the, then go ahead. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Well, and I I think you're about to go there, Sean. Go ahead. Well, but then he uh, he also gets to interact with uh the oh. he has the opposite interaction. Where he, he interacts with Sabretooth and his inclination is this is I gotta cut him down. And it's he's he's actually kind of a good guy. Um and they get brought there by Dark Beast, who is not Beast, right? He's Beast from the future, who's been through some stuff. Uh and this theory of opposites is actually something that Rick Remender uses uh, uh again in um God, Axis. There's a book called Axis mm. where mm-hmm. characters get mm-hmm. flipped. So people who were inclined to good become bad and vice versa and all that kind of craziness. I will say that the concept is used a lot better here just because it's a lot more organic. It's less gimmicky. Um, right. The other thing that Wolverine is exposed to here is the daughter he never had. Right. That's where I was going to okay. go. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that sets up kind of one of the other, uh, I guess, like minor themes of the of the book which is like um kind of the other versions of you you could have been yes yes 100 either good or bad yep. yeah um that's huge right and i and that that's established i think maybe not first here but i think most poignantly first here because that's it gives him an opportunity to think about like him as a different man right and then that's of course echoed later in his conflict with dakin and um but it's it's also true of like every like right like the what is fun about the Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler is literally that as a character embodied right is well what what could Nightcrawler have been if the dice landed a different again way? nature versus nurture right exactly yeah 
Um, again, just expertly, expertly done by Remender, allowing these uh, character studies, but not really spending too much intense dialogue on it, kind of letting it be present yeah. and leaving it to the reader to digest it and, and ascertain what the meaning is for themselves. Um, yeah, what the, like the emotional weight of the actions are. Right. And then, of course, when you talk about getting to see what a person could have been, uh, here we have Weapon Omega who is the Wolverine of the Age of Apocalypse, who has ascended to become Apocalypse, to take on that mantle. Uh, and there's a few things with that. So one is um, showcasing that this is the apex of the monstrosity that Wolverine could be. Even though Weapon Omega has a heart and he's not all bad, um, this is a brutal killer, right? He does monstrous things, Sometimes things he doesn't have to do, and he's really, really powerful um, and doesn't need to be so heavy handed, but that's what he is. And he came from a cruel world, a world that could be built if Apocalypse were allowed to live and thrive. Um, so that lends credence and justifies what you're led to assume Phantom X did, which is kill this kid and get him out of here. We know now at this point that he's growing one in a lab in the world, but still. Um, but what it also does is it shows you how dangerous Dark uh, Dark Angel could be. The fact that outside of this, in our real world, he's over there incubating. If he's not stopped, this is what happens. This is an apocalypse, right? This is an Ensabanur. This is someone they love. And that's the threat of Dark Angel. That's This is what they're going to face. So it's kind of a precursor to that. But yeah, I, I think this this also introduces us to another character who I really, really loved, although I hated him, he's a scumbag, is um, this version of Iceman. Mm. I I think they, this was a good era for Marvel in, in, in tackling Iceman, because this is around, this is a few years after the fact that uh, Marvel had established that Iceman is an Omega-level mutant. Thank you, yes. And Wolverine alludes to it in an inner monologue where this is the potential. This I, this comes up later, I guess, when things really um, explode. Um, but this Iceman has reached his potential of what he could be. And we see fast-forward three or four or five issues without getting into spoilers of that yet. Take one thing at a time. Iceman, without without tethers and limitations is terrifying yeah i never realized how powerful iceman could be until this and i always thought it was a little weird that he wasn't more powerful but i didn't realize the extent and this is him but this is him as a coward right this is him not with courage you know not with um even just rage that drives him to be a vicious monster this is him just as a coward him as someone who wants to escape the horrors that he's gone through, which are a plenty, and just chill. <laughs> and um, uh, he 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 betrays his 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 friends and, and leaves. He leaves he leaves when things get thickest, and um, lives are lost as a result of that. And of course, it sets up a vendetta that uh, will play out later for for uh, Nightcrawler, who wants revenge for that. But then then we we head into once we get past the 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 Age of Apocalypse stuff, we head back to our time and we realize that all the while that they were over there, um, machinations were in the works behind the scenes. And now 
archangels in total control, and he's assembled a vicious team. Um, he has uh, Genocide with him, who is new to us. For those of you who think this character might look familiar to you, it's because... Right. This is... uh, He has the same exact powers, pretty much, as Holocaust, but uh, he looks different, and he's allegedly the blood child of of, of Apocalypse. (laughs) That's Um, wild. It it is. Yeah. Um, I really like this character. Apocalypse has scarier-looking children than Darkseid does, dude. (laughs) (laughs) He really does. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, why? Why is your kid just a flame skeleton? <laughs> yeah, um, but I liked him because, again, like here's a child, here's right. a, someone who has genuine feelings and concern. He's concerned about his mother's life. He doesn't want them to kill his mother, and so he's doing these horrific things. And it's that theme that Rick Remender keeps playing with of innocence, and it's not always child innocence it can be the innocence of warren worthington a good man but in this case it's a young person a young a young kid who wants to do the right thing he's being convinced that what this that what he's doing here is the right thing and he's being uh edged to believe that with the threat of the death of his mother so uh just a character that i really appreciated but again now we're really in the play for archangel's soul psylocke keeps trying to take every opportunity to say, hey, don't do this. You know, we can we can walk this back. And there are several times when Wolverine or Psylocke have the jump on him, and he uses their love for him to uh, get them to back off, and it bites them in the ass every single time. I, I, I guess I guess with with this arc, I liked that Archangel was in control, and I liked that it seemed like he had a pretty good shot at winning, but I wasn't overly in love with the rapid growth thing that he was doing. Um, it was horrific how they had genocide kill that entire town. But then once they kind of like yeah. um, started to grow it or whatever, uh, I feel like I've seen things like that like a lot of times already. You would have been more high on it if they were monkey men that were uh, evolving there instead <laughs> of frog men. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It- I, I get what you mean, Sean. Like, it, it feels like very, um, I don't know, like, I, I guess, like, the idea of, like, a microcosm universe that rapidly expands and, it, like, it just, uh, yeah, that's, like, a thing I feel like I've seen in lots of comics and, like, Twilight Zone and, you know, Futurama and, you know, like, just, it's a well-worn trope, it feels Well, in like. fact, it happens in this very book because the world is that. Inside the world, time moves that's extremely true. fast and this is just that same thing, which I think... If I I don't remember exactly, but I think one of the things that Phantom X says he feels responsible for is showing uh, the world to Archangel to give him that idea. I think that might have been what he said. Oh, huh. I vaguely recall that. Yeah, yeah, something, something, something to that effect. Yo, this definitely didn't happen in the Twilight Zone. I'm trying to picture like a 1960s television show trying to approach like a rapidly evolving psychedelic landscape in like an hour. Not exactly that, all right? Pick, picture this. A town in Montana decimated by an angel. You walk through a revolving door in the Twilight Zone. That couldn't have been any better. That was great, Kyle. <laughs> I've, been, I've I've actually 
coincidentally been watching a lot of the Twilight Zone. Okay. Oh, so You've I've been preparing it down. for this bit. There you go. Yep. <laughs> so then uh, we get introduced to a celestial. And one of the things that's talked about in the Age of Apocalypse issues is that Apocalypse is f- serving a purpose. That he's actually in line with what's intended by the Celestials, by the order of things, for lack of a better term. I, I guess I want to ask, and I, I think I know the answer, but it feels worth asking anyways. If Apocalypse is preordained, if the powers of the Phoenix didn't even want to fight against Omega, um, Weapon Omega, because that would be acting against its own self-interest, because the Phoenix entity knew that that was supposed to happen. If all of that is true, should the X Men fight against natural progress? Well, hold the hold the hold, hold the phone here. In in the order of Marvel, this is me getting in the weeds of nerd shit now. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. In, in, in the order of Marvel, the Celestials aren't the all governing forces of the universe, and neither is the Phoenix Force. Uh, right. They're not the the fabric of reality as we know it. The Celestials are just some of the oldest cosmic beings in the order of everything that believe that have their own set of laws and guidelines that believe in kind of manufacturing this forced evolution we saw it with um with the uh inhumans we saw it with what happened with the kree a lot of stuff they, they they get their hands dirty and watch from afar but just because the celestials have one vision of how the universe and, and life in it should progress doesn't mean that's how the universe intends it. Like, that's not how entropy works. Like, this isn't how the cosmic, the, all, the one above all doesn't operate this way. So that's true. Just because the celestials believe that doesn't mean that the X-Men have to, even though they're obviously in scope much more insignificant than the celestials are. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, I think, a well-thought-out lore-based answer. Oh. I would also just say... I'm I'm always a fan of cosmic stories that are specifically about the heroes of Earth of any variety, like just flipping the bird to fate, you know, right. and being like, yeah, no, I don't, whatever. Like, yeah, we're a smear on, you know, the like that was what was cool about Infinity War, right? It's you know, like I I ultimately think that um, I I like the idea that there is like fate and celestial beings and, and preordained plans in the Marvel universe, but that none of them are not interruptible, right? Like fate is, is one of a a million possible futures. And the fact that that is the case makes our characters significant actors, even though there are these kind of really grandiose forces against them in that regard, right? The idea of fighting against fate, what does that mean? Right. But through willpower, they overcome it right. every time. That's what makes them heroes. Okay, fair enough. Um, but then we do get into the Celestials a little more, Phil, and, and I know that you're you know, cosmic guy. What? How did you feel about the, that in, the inclusion of that element to this story? You know, it's interesting. Um, I kind of forgot that Apocalypse's whole deal is intertwined with the Celestials. Um, and uh, on the one hand, whenever they make an appearance in, in comics – uh, which is not very often. It's right. um, it's hype. It's truly hype. Uh, because they look cool. They're the classic Jack Kirby shit, and everything dials up. Like okay, things things dial up when Galactus makes an appearance. Things dial up to a lesser extent when Thanos makes an appearance. 
but those are characters that are well established in the continuity of Marvel and everything. So like, they're, they're common tropes and storytelling for a lot of books. If you really want to ramp shit up in a in a, in a scale sense, the Celestials, on the other hand, do not show up often, and they're even bigger than, than Thanos and. Even though they're kind of a contemporary to Galactus in many ways, they're similar. I mean, Galactus is older than the Celestials, but you know he's he's a single driving force. The Celestials are like a, a bizarre race of timeless beings that no one knows a ton about even now because a lot of authors haven't really tried to tackle their whole deal, which is good. I like when things are left in ambiguity. Um, There's more mystique around exactly. them. Like, the rules of Galactus are very, very well established. Precisely. Um, and I know Apocalypse, a lot of why, and what's his name? Enser. Uh, and Sabanor. And Sabanor, thank you. A lot of why he is the way he is is because of uh, intervention from the Celestials who encountered him during ancient Egypt or whatever. My question, I guess, to you is does the involvement of Celestials uh, feel contrary or, or conflict with X-Men stories? Is it too comic booky? Because that was a question I was wrestling with. For, so for me, the answer is no. And the reason why is because, first of all, the X-Men have been involved in so many different things, right? Like the Phoenix Force is a cosmic entity, and it's deeply entrenched within X-Lore, right? Um, but then on top of that, knowing that history that you just laid out about Apocalypse and <clears throat> the fact that he is charged with this kind of mission that comes from them uh, also makes it easier to accept. I, I just I ne- never had a problem with it. It makes it makes the X-Men in this instance feel more like specs. And all it really did was force me to ask myself the question, two questions. One, can they stop this? And two, should they stop this? Because of the question I asked you guys before. If this is what the Celestials intend and the Phoenix Force doesn't want to fight against, does that mean that it is preordained? Does that mean this is what has to happen? Are they fighting against inevitability? And that was a question that ran through my mind as I read this. To talk about that, I think that what we see in the Age of Apocalypse world, especially with the way Gene will talk about things like this world without Professor Xavier and the way uh, Kid Apocalypse in the first four issue, his teachers talk about Xavier's role in, 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 in creating this world in this age of apocalypse, um, how he, he is this great impediment in creating this and in, in, in creating this would be utopia. Uh, I think that really demonstrates what Remender is trying to say is while Apocalypse and Celestials perceive this extreme Darwinism as this preordained outcome for things, mm-hmm. things are very visibly, markably better because of Charles Xavier's values in our world, which obviously is wrought with many issues. At this point, mutants are at the brink of extinction, but by comparison of just a complete wasteland, Wolverine likens where presumably New York City or whatever in the Age of Apocalypse when they arrived to being like World War Two, it's just a graveyard. It's clear what one person's vision may yield idealistically compared to one where it's just built on the bones of of the dead. Fascinating, uh, and and I say that taking everything that we read here into full context. 
the importance of Charles Xavier. His He's not even here. here. Yeah. Right. He's dead. He's been dead for uh, two or three years at this point in real lifetime. Um, maybe a little more at the point of the Dark Angel saga. But his presence can be felt despite the fact that he's not here. And I really love that. And I love the fact that these characters, I don't remember exactly who the interaction is with, but um, I think Psylocke is involved in a conversation. It may have been with her brother where she's being taken a task. like About killing the kid. Right. You're, you're spitting in the face of Charles Xavier's dream. This is not what his dream meant at all. Uh, this yeah. is the opposite of that. And it's so wild to me reading this, right? Uh, between 10 and four and six years later, because this run went on for a while, Hoxpox is a thing, you know? Yeah. And I've had that so, so, uh, at the forefront of my mind throughout this entire reading that, that in a way, it feels like all the characters in this book are fighting against their own self-interest. This is the worst period in the history of the X-Men because there's one, there's under 200 of them left, right? And they're still killing each other. All the villains in this are mutants. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, um, and, and I think in that conversation that, that Betsy has with, with her brother, uh, that's kind of her, her defense for her actions, right? And, and the necessity of them is that like, we are on the brink of extinction, you know, and like the she 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 says the that dream was a lot easier to believe in when my friends were all still alive, right? And I think um, that and and the shadow of of Genosha, which is kind of brought up a few times, I think lends a lot of weight to the actions of the book and 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 the the so called necessity of them, because I think. That's like part of what makes all of this so compelling, right? Is like they they compare um, the the then status quo of the X Men to the Age of Apocalypse like several times, you know. And <laughs> it's it's like uh, Phil even said, right? It's like it's like markedly better, even though this is the lowest point in their history. And and I think it's interesting to think that like is it like it is, but not for mutants necessarily right like maybe the the you could argue the entire world is in a better place but they as a people are are absolutely decimated and i think without charles's leadership and and without that identity like you see the remnants of of mutant society like fighting over the scrap i think it's clear based on how the age of apocalypse x-men interact with with the wolverine ascent the ascended wolverine that even in this environment, things aren't better than they are in 616. Now, what's interesting is in Hoxpox, Apocalypse is aligned, at least at the time of this recording, with Xavier and Magneto because we have a fully realized uh, ascended homo superiors on Krakoa. We have this 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 fully realized nation state of, of, of what apocalypse is is wanted which is ascension for his people and mutants have never flourished more and it's so interesting to juxtapose that with both what the age of apocalypse reality is presenting here and as sean and you pete have alluded to the lowest point for mutants in the history of the world yeah absolutely so kale did you have anything to add to that you never got a word in there uh no really no, no. <laughs> cool i, I like 
I like what you're putting down. Cool. Uh, so the Dark Angel saga does end with uh, them managing to stave off Archangel and defeat him, defeat all the baddies, and, um, you know, things go back to whatever the hell they're supposed to be. Uh, Warren. Normal. Yeah. Warren <laughs> is able to be expunged of the Archangel persona, but at the cost of his identity, he doesn't know who he is anymore. Um, which was kind of where I lost interest in the character. Um, and he's not super prevalent in the book anymore after that, but I certainly didn't care about him, uh, when he was, when he would appear in other titles after that. Uh, we see that, no, uh, Apocalypse, Kid Apocalypse, Evan, uh, Becomes a, a member of the the school, the Jean Grey school, which of course is run by Kitty Pride and Wolverine and Beast and everything. And we learned that you know now Beast and Kitty are aware of X Force and this stain on the mutant community and on Xavier's dream is now exposed, which I uh, really liked as an as an extra wrinkle because even though Beast doesn't factor in, his disdain with this is what it's what you're supposed to feel. Right, like, yeah, mm. he's he's kind of representing the 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 morality of this issue, you know. And they've wrestled with it a lot, but these are people wrestling with it who have done awful things before, whose souls are 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 stained, you know, with 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 sin and and things that they've done that are wrong. Um, so Beast is a is a is a good man, and he's saying this is not right, and I really appreciated that. That element of it. But then we get into the other world arc. And I will be very upfront with you guys when I tell you that I despised this arc when I first read it. Well, I I almost just skipped the whole thing. I I had a lot of trouble getting through it. I mean, yeah, that I think that's c- like clearly the weakest arc of the book, and I that I think the art is terrible. Like I, that was the point where I was just like, you know, like I, I think that there are some quality dips, um, as the story goes on in general here and there, but like that arc is rough. It's funny because the artist, uh, in question is Greg Tuccini, who Rick Remender would go on to work with and do amazing things with on low. Um, but for whatever reason, mm. here the art just isn't uh, super great. I think that has something to do with who he's being colored by. Uh, Dean White colors for um, Greg here, and I just don't think that their styles mesh. It looks it looks unfinished. Yeah, like I think it looks sloppy and washed out. Like it, it has that like super like like so so much of the the backgrounds are obscured like. You know, um, I'm I'm looking at issue 20 right now, and you know, uh, there's let's see, it's one, two, four pages in. The first panel is Psylocke looking out a window, oh, yeah. talking, and like her ear is like it's like smudged and like pointy in one spot. Like it's just like the body proportions are are terrible, and I think it like when there's action, it makes it really hard to tell what's going on. Um, I found it hard to like follow characters who hadn't been introduced before now that didn't have a distinct look um, because it was just like stuff was so obscured and like, oof, man. And I think it takes the weight out of a lot of the like the more serious moments because it's so like it's so hard to connect with the art for me. Yeah, 
uh, even this second, I mean, this isn't my second reading, but th- this reread, uh, it was not, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get with this arc. It, it does continue. It's not good. It, it continues a lot of the themes that are present throughout the rest of the book. Uh, Phantom X is being tried by um, by uh, Br- uh, Brian Braddock, uh, Captain Britain, um, for his crimes of killing uh, Ap- Apocalypse, Evan. And, you know, that's cool. And these characters have to deal with what they did. And I appreciate it for that. But... Almost every other element of it, I felt like was a stopgap. It this this feels like the least X Force, uh, part of this title. Yeah, like the only the only X Force part of it are the characters involved. If it were anything, yeah. I, like it might even work if it were anything else. And and it's like to Sean's point, I, there are elements of it that end up being useful later on for the good stuff of X-Force, like how this plays into Psylocke's character um, or Betsy's character, like has weight and is cool. Um, But man, it's a long story arc for that. Yeah, I guess it probably feels longer than it really is. It's only four issues, but wow, it's only four issues of the wow. Oh my God. I thought it was so much longer. (laughs) I don't know if you guys noticed this, but, um, uh, when Psylocke uses her brother to kill her other brother, that brother is the one that we see resurrected in. Oh, wait, did you guys read that? It, I know it ha- it happens in. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We did. Okay, cool. It, yeah, yeah. He gets resurrected at some point during the Dawn of X stuff that we've been reading. I think that was in Excalibur number one. Yeah, pretty sure. Um, and I'd been wondering. I couldn't remember how he died. And I, I mean, there's been years since this took place. It's possible he was resurrected and died again at some point. But uh, I'm thinking this might be where he was killed. I think you're right because I feel like I remember it being awkward because she had been the one who killed right. him. Um, but yeah, unless you guys have something more specific to say about this arc, I don't really feel like we need to linger on it too much longer. No, um, no. The, the 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 meat is and everything that came before this. I I, I, I like a good trial story. Um, it's what made Wonder Woman Earth 1 Volume 1 work so well. And I think this right. works fine, too. Sure. Uh, but I, all, all the story really came to a nice little end in either, what, 18 or 19? Hell, we didn't even really talk about Genesis. That was a really interesting development. But, you know, the, the story moved in a new direction, and it was fine. Okay. Um, do you want to take some time to speak on Genesis while you're at it? What do you... <laughs> How do you feel about the the comic trope of to raise a good kid, they need to be raised on a farm in Kansas? <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that that Remender kind of used that um, because, of course, it makes you think about Superman, and you know he's kind of trying to raise Superman. Yeah, um, I like saying it. I really like the idea, and you'll have to tell me how this developed in, in over the books. But like, I I, I, I imagine a scenario where, okay, okay. So one thing I thought about was what before it became clear that like Archangel was his own person and not possessed by apocalypses. I was thinking of final crisis where dark side came into earth through a human host uh, and, yeah. and, and, and how that was realized. Cause it was a similar kind of like, this is the day evil won, right? In this book, evil almost won. Um, now maybe start thinking like, what if apocalypse, what if dark side was raised to be Superman instead or something, which is a bizarre concept, but 
how how did this like uh, kid apocalypse uh, uh, kind of story arc play out after uh, X Force? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember a lot of what was done with him. I remember actually really disliking him. <laughs> okay, great. This. Um, I know that he ends up joining, he joins the X-Men at some point when they had like the kids come back. Remember when they had like the yeah. young versions, he, he messes with them. He's, he's with them for a while. Um, I know that he, like right at the end of, of X-Men continuity before, uh, House and Powers, he, he's very prominent, but I can't remember exactly what he does. So I went and read about it a little bit after that. Cause I had the same question and, um, the my understanding anyway and i i could be wrong again because all i did was you know go read the the marvel wikia or whatever um but it looked like his last appearance was in july 2019 and they faked his death yeah that sounds about right i remember he he like not ascends but he kind of takes on the, the 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 visage of apocalypse and stuff yeah and he he tries to like uh, 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 um deploy this bomb that's going to kill all humanity and then like Deadpool kind of talks him off the ledge and then he goes and lives with Deadpool for a while and then I think the last thing that happens is the thing I just said right so he's in the wind but I I didn't I didn't think he was handled with grace Phil okay Mm. but I I was I guess he's still technically on the board it's hard to say because uh he's not a mutant right so oh I guess I guess he is yeah, yeah, he, yeah, is, he right? is. The, the original kid was a mutant, so. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't we'll know. See. Yeah, yeah. I guess we will. Maybe we won't. Yeah, maybe we won't. That is very true. After that, we do get the issue where uh, 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 Nightcrawler gets his revenge against uh, Iceman, which I really liked. I thought that was an awesome issue. Yeah. What a way to it go like- out, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that shit was fucking brutal. <laughs> um,. And I, I think I liked it because it was hard to watch. Yeah. Like, it, it's uh, – like, I like that Nightcrawler kind of has to, like, psych himself up to do it, you mm. know? And that, like, uh, he uh, – it's interesting because, like, I, this Nightcrawler is clearly, like we said, he's not our Kurt and – um he's been uh, twisted in, in some ways, but I think there's still kind of, like – a core to him that isn't necessarily represented by his actions wholly. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a bit of the Kurt that we know that's still kind of in there because he, you know, is struggling to do these things, even though he claims they're his only motivation left, you know? Yeah. Um, And I, I do believe that to be the case because of how he addresses the situation with Blob later on. Um, clearly yeah. he's just driven by vengeance and, uh, whatever, you know, good guy stuff, uh, was left in him was washed away by his need to, to, uh, finish the job as it were. Um, mm-hmm. even then though, right? Like, and not, not to jump ahead too far, but like he is talking about like when he's doing it, like when he's getting into the thick of the fight, he's trying to remind himself of why he, you know, like he's like he's like remember the day that you propose, proposed. Remember the smell of her neck. Like he's trying to fucking tap into that like berserker rage, like Wolverine does, basically. Um, and I think that speaks to like the fact that there is like a struggle 
within him, even though he is like, you know, like pretty fucking far gone at that point. Yeah, for me, that spoke to the difficulty that comes with murder. Right. Yes. Especially because it's not like this was just a guy who was just a villain, right? Like, it's not like he's killing whatever um, apocalypse. He's killing someone who was his best friend, you know, who, mm. who betrayed him. So that's how how I interpreted that. But yeah, I really, I really loved that whole sequence. I thought that was awesome. And in that very same issue, uh, Phantom X and, and um, Psylocke finally end up hooking up. So we get that business out of the way. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think this this run has a lot of really good single issues. Yeah, I I agree. Um, the, to me, I think this is where where this is where the book really picks like back up in a big way for me. Um, I think this is probably the second best arc. Oh yeah, the the final execution arc. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's jump into it. Uh, There's some meat there. Yeah. So this is. This is where this is where I feel like the questions that the book has been forcing you to ask uh start to kind of like come to bear the most because now you know now we're seeing how Evan himself is being sort of tempted right like the brotherhood of evil mutants has reformed which was so random when I first read it but I really loved it. I thought it was a really cool team, a really interesting team. You get more of your boy um, Shadow King. Oh yeah, gotta have it. <laughs> and Blob, my that that Blob <laughs> is my man. He is such a scumbag. He literally has Nasty. pizza resting on his stomach he's that he's gonna eat later. He's a king. <laughs> he fucking sucks so hard. <laughs> Never ever ever trust a man with nipple rings. I'll tell you that. Well, all right. Just another quick generalization <laughs> by Peter Bessie. Can't, can't. I mean, I mean, you can't trust Sean. Excuse me. How can you just say that? Do you, Whoa. Do you, do, you, do you guys think the shark that Nightcrawler teleported inside the blob kept some blob on his stomach to eat later? <laughs> How would he reach it? <laughs> That's a great damn question, dude. I don't know. I <laughs> know physiologist with sharks. That's all right. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, so they, they capture Evan and they're trying to turn him into Apocalypse. They're trying to get him, uh, to fulfill what they believe to be uh, his destiny. And now we're really playing for the soul of this character. Um, and I really loved getting to see Mystique involved. Mystique is one of my favorite mutants. Um, her motivations are never clear. One thing I loved that really has more weight now than it did back then is that she has a grudge against Shadow King for what he did to Destiny, which we don't, I don't know what he did to Destiny, but we know that she's dead in, in the Hoxpox period, right? right. So hmm. I'm assuming that whatever he did to her is why she's not around anymore. And it's just a cool reference to something that, you know, when we read Hoxpox, we weren't all that clear on so i just like that um and again the team is broken now psylocke and phantom x are off you know separated doing their own thing um phantom x gets taken out really quickly we've got the uh omega what do they call the omega clan Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were you guys confused by them, by the way? No. Okay. I got it. At first, I was like, wait, who the hell are they? Yeah, I had no knowledge of who they were. I got their deal, but I just quickly moved on and accepted it. It's comics. I mean, did they exist before this? No, that's why I was asking, because I was confused myself. They were created. Oh. They were created by the uh, by this place that Deadpool yeah. goes and implanted with yeah. memories. Right. Yeah. yeah. I just oh, sure. Sure. Didn't okay. realize that at first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I was I was confused about where you were getting tripped up. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. Uh, they were cool. Like I didn't feel like they really accomplished much. They were just kind of like good goons. Yeah. You know, good goons. Um. But, but <laughs> I, I like that. And I think that that's like one of the things that um, that this series does really well. Like we talked about with the Final Horseman, is like kind of um, like endeavoring to establish new characters and like making them worthwhile. Yeah. And I think that like while they don't really have much weight narratively, um, they're they're like very cool toys to put on the board, you know. And like the way that their their powers specifically counter the three people on this team with a fucking healing factor like ends up making a lot of the fights like actually matter, you know, cause uh, that's like a tough problem. You kind of have to solve when you have a team that includes both Wolverine and Deadpool. It's like, well, neither of them can be killed and granted Deadpool ends up getting his healing factor taken away, which like helps raise the stakes a little bit, but yeah, like they serve as really good foils. Yeah. Um, and, and can I just say that whenever a character gets fattened up by disease, I'm always absolutely horrified. Like, this oh, yeah. wild. Wolverine is disgusting. And the way he just so bad. slices his own belly open to get it out of him is just like, come on. No, sir. And it's... And the implication is that it's so heavy it goes through the floor. It's like, oh my god, come on, dude. I can hardly handle it. So gross. Yeah, it's gnarly. One thing that I was not clear on, and still I'm not actually, and want to know what you guys think is, what was the motivation, and maybe I missed it, what was the motivation behind the New Brotherhood to do this? Uh, So, I I got the impression that Sabretooth orchestrated the whole thing. Was that like it, he got Mystique involved based on what they were talking about in their kind of like, you know, their romantic sessions or whatever, because she had her own agenda right. and she, you know, helped him get this set up. Because when he talks to uh, to Wolverine later on, like he basically is like, well, this is what I was doing, right? Like I wanted you to kill your son and have to live with that forever. So I orchestrated this whole thing and I put in this time with him and – you know, blah, 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 blah. So I very much got the impression that he had this idea and kind of leveraged Mystique to actually make it happen. Fair enough. Um, I guess I... And then Dokken would get involved because of his father. Right. And then Shadow King just because, just to do it. He has a grudge against Psylocke. Yeah, 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 that's true. So it was like everybody everybody who it doesn't make sense to be involved has, has a vendetta against somebody who they went after. Right. I really loved this arc for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the way – so these characters that were chosen, specifically Mystique and Dokken, the new inclusions, have specific effects on specific characters. Her conversation with Kurt, her son, Terrific. I really appreciate it. That was fantastic. Oh, so good. 
Because here's this woman, right, who we know to be conflicted, often on the side of evil, sometimes on the side of good, who does things for a lot of times reasons we don't fully understand, but does have a core inside her that does want love and is a good person on some, like, level, right? Here she meets her son that, in his time, loves her. And she needs to know why. And it, it again, is just an echo of that same, the same themes that have been driving this entire book. Um, and I, I just, I love seeing it play out right there. Yeah, well, could have been, right? right? And then we get it again with Dokken. Never was it more clear than right then and there. I actually feel like Wolverine's entire story arc sort of hinges on that interaction that he has with Dokken, where it's like, Especially if you've read a lot of Wolverine, if you've read his run, uh, Jason Aaron's run with the character, where he's... I'm sorry, you just cut out there for a second. Could you just repeat that for the YouTube Sure. Especially if you're familiar with Wolverine's history and Jason Aaron's run with the character, where he's put in a situation where all these different assassins are coming after him, and he's cutting them down, and at the end of that, the villain of the story tells him, all of those people you just killed were your own children. All these different assassins who don't know who their parents are, Wolverine's their dad. So Wolverine has all this all this loss, and he's never been the father to any of his kids that, that he could have been, didn't know most of them existed just because of the way his mind has been messed with. And here's an opportunity to actually influence one of his real children in Dokken. And this person hates him for not being in his life. And all this super heroics, all this bloodshed, all this stuff that's happening here, right? You throw all that out the window, and here's a, a, a kid who hates his father for not being there. And that's it. And Wolverine yep. sees an opportunity to potentially redeem himself with, with, with his son. And how was that not different, or how was that different than the possibility of redeeming Kid Apocalypse way back in issue four by just treating him like a human being. And I love how this thing goes full circle when we get introduced to Dokken and that sequence between him and Wolverine. Huh. That also that makes me think of the um the Age of Apocalypse Sabretooth and his uh his kid. They had it seemed like they had a decent relationship, but I think Deadpool points out that he makes him walk around with a, a collar and a chain oh, or something. Wild child, wild child. Yeah. Yes, and then and then it juxtaposes Deadpool with Evan, which which is where I finally came around on Deadpool in this in this run because I would I would want to skip pretty much every dialogue he had in the first fifteen <laughs> issues of the book. And really, oh yeah, I can't fucking stand that character but when 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 it was like he sees himself in evan but a different path he could lead than the one he's led it's it's all about like it's all about just opportunities to not make the like people project themselves on onto younger people to not make the same fuck-ups that they did in life yeah well, and to me, it's so funny because I um like I totally get not liking Deadpool, and the I think the the thing that's kept me from being a bigger fan of the character is those things, um is kind of the um the memification of the character more and more over time, 
Let's uh, jungles. Right, but but I I think that this book is like a perfect example of how to use him right because I think like in the moments where his character is leveraged for comic relief, um, it's often useful because this book is so fucking heavy and grim dark and like having um him and and uh um oh my god Frenchie Phantom X Le Pew Phantom, Phantom X thank you having him in Phantom that's what he calls Wolverine calls him yeah Phantom X uh having Deadpool and Phantom X um to break that up with two different kind of styles of humor I think is important but um particularly I think the way that Deadpool is leveraged in serious moments is like really poignant like i think him being the one to call the meeting to be like i'm really fucking uncomfortable with the fact that we killed a kid is that has a huge weight when you think of the context of who deadpool is as a character and how little he takes anything seriously and how much of you know he he says himself that he justifies the fact that he's a vicious killer in his head all the time but this is something he couldn't shake like that has weight when he has that really serious moment that you're talking about that ends up having weight right um and i think uh, his usage in this series is like a, a perfect perfect use case for writers like on how to write a good deadpool story yeah um i was waiting f- to talk about deadpool a little later but uh, since he's come up which i'm glad for i hated deadpool when i first picked up issue one i couldn't stand him i really didn't get why people liked him and i was like i don't get why he's on this team i'm very ready to not like this book because of deadpool and it really didn't take long for me to realize remender is doing something different with this character and no disrespect to anyone who's written him before or after but i feel like it's just a lot of writers who didn't know how to pull the good stuff out of him and and this is an instance of a writer who got it. Uh, he was humanized by issue five. You know, um, he's a mercenary, you know, like the way we see him with all the jokes and slapstick and stuff, whatever. The way the characters in story see him is he's a mercenary. He's a killer for hire. He's not to be trusted. And there's nothing going on in his brain. And the exact opposite is true. And I really, really love that. Um, and I feel like so many of these characters are presenting masks. You know, they're lying with what they're telling us. And I talked yeah. about that way back when we first started this thing. And Deadpool's the one who, in my mind, got redeemed the most by showing the truth of who he is in those moments where Remender chose to expose him, to let his guard down. Um, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, and I'm totally with you, Sean, and I think, to me, that is always, um, those are the kinds of Deadpool stories that I connected with when I was younger and I was more into the character, is, like, and I think that's more how he was in his, like, earlier incarnations before he became more popular, Um, and that's a lot of the stuff that I'm more familiar with, but I, I think that when you have, like, when you strip back a lot of the excess bullshit you know, meme humor, um, that conversation that he has with Kid Apocalypse where, like, he he calls him, like, a hero and, like, that, like, is really meaningful to yeah. him. I think when writers play with that angle of the character, like, that's what has always um, drawn me to him 
is that I think there is a vulnerability to Deadpool, that there is like an emotional core to the character that is kind of um, at odds with a lot of the other more popular elements of the character, I think. Um, but I think when those things are leveraged, he can, he can be really compelling and interesting because um, he's a wild card. Yeah. So we kind of we kind of jump past it, but there's a little there's a middle bit in the final execution arc where uh, the characters go to the future yet again. Uh, they jump thirty years. <laughs> they jump thirty years, <laughs> and they're immediately confronted with Deathlock, who tells them that the things that they have done, specifically killing Kid Apocalypse and agreeing to this sort of uh, pre crime. Um, sentencing for people has an extreme bad outcome. Uh, and that's what this future is. And because they refuse to give up their crusade, Deathlock tries to kill them. And I really liked that because Deathlock has evolved as a character too. I feel like every single character in this book evolved. Um, but Deathlock, in the beginning, has to find love. He has to find the ability to love. He has to adapt past his robotic nature, even though there is a human inside of him who is a vicious killer. He has to evolve to find love. And these are characters that he has grown to love. He tells them, I love you. And he's willing to kill them because they won't stop. And that very same thing is what ends up killing him. Because of the, the, the system that they've set up in this future world where anyone who thinks about murder or has intentions for murder dies. They just get killed. Um, and the way that that – Doesn't he kill himself though? I thought he got dis- – no, I thought he got um, shot by – Did they shoot him up and then he falls off the building? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's I – he, I thought he leapt off, okay. Nah, yeah, here he is getting blasted. Uh, suspect okay, cool, is extremely cool. volatile for your own safety. Step away from him. And he gets shot and blasted, and then and he Cable falls off. torches him up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. the way that affects Psylocke, who goes to kill herself to prevent this future from ever occurring, and then meets herself, the person who is at the forefront of this whole change. I want to take this opportunity to talk about Psylocke. What did you guys feel about her, her growth in this issue, or not this issue, but in this run as a character? What do you feel about the journey that Remender and Cole take her on? I think that um, I think that her arc is probably the most well realized, aside from maybe Wolverine. And I, but I I think that hers has a lot more ebbs and flows, which kind of allows it to be more um, peaks and valleys. And I don't I don't mean that in like an extreme way, because um, I don't I don't think that there's anything about her arc that's done uh, poorly. Um, but I feel like the pacing of it's a little weird because of how many events kind of interwine. You know, like I think when you like look at her growth as a character in the way that we're doing from beginning to end, I think it's really satisfying. Um, but I think as a reader, I remember feeling like it felt like her, pro- her the progress of her story happened in bursts, whereas um, I felt like. Uh, like Wolverines, I guess specifically is is more baked into the broader themes of the story, I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't know how like <sighs> I'll ruminate on that. Go well, ahead. <laughs> well, look 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 how she changes. Um, early on, Phantom X says to her that she doesn't really love Warren, 
She loves being needed. And in this issue that you're talking about, Sean, before she thinks about committing Harry Carey, she, she, she ruminates over the fact that Phantom X died for her. Right. And it, her arc was one about realizing, like, living for herself in a way. Because even the third, fourth arc or whatever was everything involving, like, the, the Captain Britain squad of. Otherworld, yeah. The Captain Britain squad. <laughs> um, which are, are a bunch of a uh, bunch of Betsy Braddock supporting characters. Uh, so I mean, everything is about because uh, even earlier on, she runs um, a simulation in um, in uh, Cerebro where Brian exonerates her. He says he can't condone her, but he understands. So everything uh, culminates in in her being able to kind of live with herself. Yeah. You know? And again, a character who's been through hell, you know, in a variety of different ways, has to find a way to live with that. And I think her flaw, if you will, when we come into the book, is that she's very fixated on making her making her identity based on other people. Her identity in the beginning is based on how can I protect Warren from arcing, you know? Yeah. Uh, then once that's done, her identity becomes, well, what's going on with Phantom X and, and I? I need to protect him from my brother. Mm. And then once that's over with and she loses the ability to feel bad, to feel sorrow, to feel, you know, whatever. Now it's like, well, then who the hell am I if I can't feel bad for people? And what Phil said, I think, is 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 where that comes around, which is I got to live for me. Yeah. And I really yeah. appreciated that as mm-hmm. an extremely simple statement. It's not complicated, and it's not. Um, you can you can push aside all the heroics and find something that everyone can relate to, you know. Um, and I just love that she was used in that way to send that type of a message. And I felt for her all throughout this book. In fact, she was probably the character that I resonated with the most. Why is that? Uh, probably, the probably the fact that she kisses the lips that kiss Jean Grey. <laughs> that is, there's something to that. Uh, no, I, I don't know, man. I think that trying to help others at the cost of yourself is something that a lot of people can relate to, yeah. myself included. I remember when I became deaf. That shit sucked. <laughs> Oh, I I loved it. That's a rough road. He, Kale specifically appreciated the skimpy outfit on. Yeah, you. showed off yeah. a lot of butt. I, I look great in a thong. <laughs> I don't even want to think about that at all. That was that was a pretty solid Deadpool joke too. I think. <laughs> yeah, Deadpool had a lot of great lines overall in this book. But I also really uh, I think it's that same issue. It's the where him and Nightcrawler talk about how the the chestnut, the water chestnuts are expired or whatever. How <laughs> like, like Nightcrawler's like, so they're expired, huh? Like, <laughs> yeah. The the final execution arc I think is a really good looking arc too. A lot of the art is uh, really really good. Yes, it's the panels are are really straightforward, and I think. The book kind of gets more straightforward as it goes on. Like it starts pretty basic, then it gets crazy, and then it tones down here in terms of 
the way that things are presented to us. Uh, lots of like four and five panel pages that, you know, don't mm. do anything uh, too outside of the norm. Um, there aren't a lot of pop-in panels or anything like that. Like it's really just um, uh, basic stuff. But everything inside the panels is is fantastic. And um, that's Phil Noto, man. Yeah, like he he really killed it. I, I I his arc was one where I was like very thankful for it from an artistic perspective because like I, I think it 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 is simple, but it kind of grounded us again yeah. after some bits that are a little. Uh, you know, hit or miss. Agreed. And then, and then, uh, the book ends. Uh, issue 34, everything is kind of resolved. Evan chooses the side of good. Um, that whole thing with him kind of gets wrapped up, like, quick. Uh, he just decides he's not going to be a douche and, uh, not going to kill Sabretooth and leaves. And we see that Wolverine has this vision of, of what could have been. Which at least I think that's what it, what that's supposed to be, um, what he could have had with Dokken had he been present as a father and all that mm. kind of stuff. And we learned then that he actually let him live. Well, go ahead. Is that the implication? I thought so. Because because I I got the implication that he actually killed him because Future Wolverine tells him that if he doesn't, he'll kill all the ex the X kids. And so my my takeaway there. Was and that was, <clears throat> I think, and that again, that's my interpretation of events. If you guys disagree, I'm interested in talking that out. But I thought that that really drove home the fact that Remender isn't making a clean statement on whether or not there is ethical acts of killing, because I I very much took that to be like yes, X Force is uh, is ending because they agree that what they were doing was wrong and they were going down a bad road. But here Wolverine is making a choice to kill his son at great detriment to his personal self to prevent an action that he knows he will commit, right? An evil that he knows he can prevent. And I think that it, it – I, I really like that because I think to me it really drove home um, what I think is, is kind of Remender's statement on that whole thread, that whole narrative theme, which is kind of like – that actions aren't inherently good or bad that um that killing someone is uh, an action that that has weight that takes a toll on your soul whether or not the ends justify the means um and and i think like again it's kind of up to you to sort through whether whether that jives with you or not right whether the ends do justify the means whether um whether you can like accept that stain on your soul for that, you know, that greater good, I guess. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I think I was um, uh, thinking ahead because Dokken comes back. Um, but, uh, okay. but yeah, he, he definitely kills him. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, or, you know, he thinks he killed him. But uh, yeah, no, that is that it's awful that he had to make that choice. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine, like, you killed your kid, you know, regardless of whatever. It's not the yeah. same. He even says it uh, to, to Psylocke. It's not the same as killing a kid, you know? Um, yeah, and you know that. Yeah, that's that's screwed up. Well, I think it's particularly fucked up 
when because you brought up the the arc where he has to kill all his other children and stuff yeah. and like there's also the the echo earlier where his his daughter who he's starting to connect with dies and it's like this theme of not only is wolverine like a, a consistent failure as a father um whether it's his prop his fault or not he does that at the expense of the ex-kids right like that he puts those kids before his kids whether intentionally or unintentionally right um, and I think that makes the whole docking of it all, like, sting even more. Well, the other thing that is constantly recurring is, no matter what, a chubby saber tooth will show up and be like, hey, 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 he killed your kid. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, if anything's consistent, it's that somehow this universe's blob is really good at sneak attacks. Because there's like three times <laughs> where out of nowhere, he's just like, bombs away, motherfucker, and just flattens somebody. <laughs> like, and I don't understand how that keeps happening. Listen, man. That mystery. was, uh, that was it was canon that he was that they were not flattened. <laughs> it's canon that Sabretooth is also not flattened in the stomach. I think, though, Pete, that your ultimate uh, takeaway that what Rick Remender is positing here is that that actions are neutral is really interesting because the book spends a lot of time showing us how the killing leads to a negative end. Yes. I think the only killing that is not negative is uh, the killing of Dockett. It's not like negative in terms of how it impacts the world or society or what happens next, but it is in terms of how it affects Wolverine. So in a lot of ways, everything is subjective, right? Because objectively, he stopped a lot of different murders. And what he did didn't wasn't a net loss outside of himself before himself it was that do you guys think right. that's what the book is trying to say I, I i think i think pete said it uh at the beginning of whatever it was he said it, it just that all of this murder is just like uh, whatever benefit it has it's it's not all clean it doesn't all come out in the wash you always have blood on your hands right if you mm-hmm. have blood on your hands, yes. I mean, if you kill someone, no matter how, right. many, how, how many times you wash it, there will be blood on your hands. There's been a lot of stories written and told with that. Um, yeah. Out damned spot. I don't know. Even, even with, 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 um, with Wolverine's son, obviously there, there was a, he made it very clear that if he didn't die, there would be a lot of bad things that would happen, which is what's juxtaposed with Kid Apocalypse in the first few issues because, we don't know. It's speculation. It's that kind of timeless argument. If you can go back time and kill Hitler, would you? Well, what if Hitler was a kid and you could have raised him differently? What what would have happened? Uh, is that person preordained to have committed the acts of horror they did? I don't like. Who's to say, right? But with the, the the difference here is a man with a gun saying, "If you don't stop me, it's like it's like that hypothetical put together in um, uh, Annis's." Uh, Punisher, Max Punisher run, where he's like, he gives Pun- he gives Daredevil a gun and says, "Well, st- you better shoot me, or I'm going to kill all these people." That's kind of what the situation Wolverine is put in. And even then, mm. where Daredevil mm. didn't pull the trigger, and Wolverine did here, Wolverine still has that blood on his hands because at the end of the day, hey, he- just like Man of Steel, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, <laughs> right, and and I I kind of think that's um. 
I think that's why that's the takeaway I took from the story anyway, because I think this is something that like we t- we've talked about on this this specific show several times in a lot of different superhero stories where characters are forced to make choices that are unsavory. Um, and in the beginning of this, right, Sean asks us a question, would you have killed Kid Apocalypse? And I think, I think um, looking at, at any of these actions as wholly good or wholly bad is something that's like echoed throughout the book in different ways too, right? Because, uh, there's the trial, right? Where where the all of the Captain Britons very much are like, this is an objectively bad action and it doesn't matter whether or not you could have, may have, whatever. What you did was kill a child and that's objectively wrong, right? And I think that you look at the... You juxtapose that with the killing of Dakin, right? You can't argue that Wolverine didn't need to do that because he did know what would happen. Right? Like his future self told him as much. I made this mistake. Don't make the same mistake. And um, I think that is what's interesting because what Phil said before, right, to counteract that is, is true in a world where you don't know and you're only speculating. Wolverine isn't speculating in that case, um, which adds a, a dynamic to that that isn't justifying necessarily killing. Um, preemptively because it's not just preemptively like it is a little the deck is loaded in that decision but at the end of the day you're right the blood is still on his hands he still strangled his son he still drowned his son but i don't think you can argue that that's not what he should have done because him not doing that doesn't lead to a scenario necessarily where dakin becomes good right or where he has a chance at at being absolved or 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 turning right no the the outcome of that is the murder of a bunch of other children who are a innocent and b some of the last remaining mutants and maybe the the you know the last generation of mutants from wolverine's point of view right now who he's been charged to protect you know so like that action of killing his son has both shades of of black and white of good and evil right it is good that he prevented the death of innocent children it is a stain on his soul that he failed his son and had to kill him. Those things are both true. Yeah. <clears throat> I think my takeaway from this uh, was a little broader. My takeaway uh, from this book was that you don't have to be defined by your past. That you don't have to live in regret. You don't have to cast yourself in shadows because of things that you have done. That there is a way out of that. I think Psylocke is representative of that. I think Deadpool's conversations with Evan at the end are representative of that. I think Phantom X's ultimate end, uh, how things end up for him, are representative of that. I think it's all about the choices that you make every day, not just yesterday. So I really appreciated that, and I love that that's a thread and a theme that dances in, in Rick Remender's books, almost all of his books, um, find a way to talk about that kind of thing. And it's clear that he's he's wrestling with and exploring these things within himself. Um, and that's what elevates this story for me above pretty much all other superhero stories that I've read, barring very, very few, is that it's not just 
the next chapter in the story of the X-Men. It's also trying to say something broader than just what happens with these characters. It's using what the, what happens to these characters to speak to us. Um, Rick is yeah. speaking to us through them. I think that's a, a really good point, Sean. And that was my, uh, my kind of walk away from it. Cause I remember going into this book club, um, like when, because bef- um, when you sat down and were like, this is the book I want to do. Right. Like, uh, I didn't realize until I sat down to read issue one. I'm like, oh, I've read this. You know, like I'm familiar with this. And I kind of had this thought of like, why are we reading this entire run? You know, like is it's going to be a bunch of like this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Right. And this isn't that. And this is the kind of superhero book that resonates with me um, when you're talking about monthly books. And, like, this kind of story is the story I want, you know, like, that is saying something, not just, here's what happened next. And I think a lot of monthly superhero books don't have the opportunity to do that, you know, or or, or don't have any interest in doing that, or, or, or you know, the, the writers lack the execution chops that Remender has. So, and, like, whatever it is, you don't usually get this in a monthly book. Right. And you don't usually get multiple arcs that have the chance to establish players and themes and stakes and build on them long enough for them to uh, pay off. And that's what sets this apart and why it's such a good read, you know, and why I think it's worth revisiting, you know, uh, years and years later and years and years after it's relevant, you know, because it's not just a moment in continuity. It's a good story. Do you guys, uh, Phil, Kale, have anything you want to say before we kind of wrap this up with a bow? No, I liked it. I, uh, I this turned out a lot better than I thought it was gonna. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> oh, ye of little faith. Uniforms are cool. Yep. What was that? Oh yeah, the uniforms are oh, cool. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Probably. Um, this is really good. I'm glad you X-forced me to read it. You're <laughs> really X-forcing that joke. <laughs> <laughs> It's funnier when John does it. <laughs> um, this this is one of the better. This is this is one of the better uh, non like. I would say of like the last twenty years, this is, this is one of the best X Men books I've read. You know, outside of like New X Men, uh, like uh, uh, Peter Milligan's Ecstatic stuff. And what's happening right now in, in, in Dawn of X and Hawksbox, this, this is like, this is this was good stuff. Real peak stuff here. I am very pleased that you all feel that way. I'm glad you had us go back because I don't, I don't think I ever would have picked it up again. And I'm glad I did because the best stuff was stuff I hadn't even gotten to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so just, I guess, you guys sort of summed up your feelings. Just the last question is, would you recommend it? Uh, yes, but not to every reader. I think it's a book that if you're not a somewhat seasoned reader or at least have a, a particularly affinity for one of these characters, um, I think it can probably is a little tough to just come into. Um, but I also think that if you're willing to accept the fact that you will not understand what's going on in the very beginning, um, that won't matter. Because I don't think that the book like is confused if you don't understand the context. It's pretty well self-contained. Um, but it's definitely like deep 
comic book shit, mm. but it's really, really good, well executed, well written comic book, deep comic book shit. So, do I recommend it? Hell yeah. Um, is it new reader friendly? Maybe not so much. Yeah, maybe uh, give them like a, a good entry level Wolverine or Deadpool book or X book. You know, this is like a later one. This is when you get them when they're already accustomed to it a little bit. Yeah, I think I still would recommend it. I think I think it might be confused and maybe lack familiarity with certain characters like Phantom X and, and Psylocke. But I don't think I don't think they're hard characters to understand, and I don't think the book is too deep in lore to to confuse a new reader i like i think a lot of people have conversational knowledge of like what apocalypse is and when I, I don't mean the character but i mean like the biblical event um like i think people have conversational knowledge of the they have a gist of what that stuff is based on i think people have familiarity with wolverine and deadpool and i think the bigger themes going on here is what the story is actually about and i, I think that's all it I think that's all that matters. So I think I think most people will be able to pick up what's going on. Fair point. How about you, Kill? I think I'm somewhere in between Pete and Phil. Um, I I uh, I think I would, uh, but I think I would. My inclination would be to stick to people who are probably already fans of Wolverine and Deadpool and are looking for something that they don't uh, don't already know about. Or maybe someone, you know, maybe someone a bit newer who's just looking for uh, a, a good story that's a little a little more off the beaten path, and they're willing to, you know, get their hands dirty in it. I would certainly recommend it. I think the length of it is uh, probably the only thing that would make me trepidatious to recommend it to someone who was hot out the gate, unless they really wanted something more meaty. It's not the starting point that house and powers are but i don't think that it requires much knowledge of anyone that's here uh a majority of the relevant characters have appeared a lot in other places so if you i mean apocalypse had a blockbuster movie wolverine's been around in popular media for 30 years you know deadpool's well there's so much um there's a wealth of, of resource to be able to know about these characters without ever having dipped a toe into comics. And so to me, I think that uh, I would recommend this to anyone who wanted a, a dive into the deeper waters of a great X-Men story. And when I say deeper water, I just mean something that's going to challenge you a little bit to think and something that's going to call, require some time, some of your time. Yeah. You can read House and Powers sure. in a sitting. It's only 12 issues. This is going to probably take you a little longer, but I don't think that the journey uh, nor the experience will be any less great. So, yeah, I would recommend it wholly. Thank you guys for listening and taking this journey with us. Uh, I really appreciate some feedback to hear what you guys thought about our conversation, what you think about the book, what books you'd like to see us speak on next. Um, we do have some listener submissions coming up soon uh, for the book club. We will be doing some of your submissions. And we have a host of book clubs in the bank um, that you guys can go check out. You know, Our vault is open, and uh, hopefully there's something there that you will enjoy as much as this. It's like a disproportionate amount of X-Men for some reason. <laughs> Maybe right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
Again, we are the Comics Pals. Normally, we do a weekly podcast where we talk about comics, film and television as it relates to comics, and the inner workings of the comic book industry. We also review comic books such as what's going on in the current X-Men stuff. So if you're interested in that, swing on over and check out our most recent episode or any episode that tickles your fancy on any podcast hosting platform that you enjoy or YouTube, where if you're there, you can leave us a like, drop us a comment, subscribe to the channel, and share with your friends and all that good stuff. So with that, you're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next month. Did you guys notice that... Did you guys notice that Pete called it the Marvel Waikiki?